First Timothy. So we're learning all about the church in First Timothy, and we're seeing this word godliness appear eight times. Do you see a pattern here? The church models godliness to the world. The church shows forth godliness. And what is godliness? It is our participation in Christ. It is our being conformed to the image of Christ. It is our sanctification. It is our original Edenic call to bearing the image of God. To bearing the image of God. And what that really means to represent God as His people on earth that have dominion and subdual and all that goes with that. The original plan for humanity restored in us, brought to fruition in us. Our ambition, as it was Jesus' ambition to always be pleasing the Father. That's godliness. And it's mentioned, again, sometimes it's translated holiness in other places in Scripture as well. But godliness here is mentioned eight times in Timothy in a number of different settings. Pay attention to those as you read through Timothy and you go through that. Someone said, Christ is the mystery of God made visible. So Christ makes known the Father, the mystery of God. God is mystery. People try so hard to understand and identify and say who God is and what God is like, don't they? I mean, isn't that, isn't that not everybody's impulse? Even the atheist, whether or not he or she likes that. Christ is the mystery of God made visible as the church in its turn will render the mystery of Christ visible. The church renders the mystery of Christ visible. Jesus is no longer physically here among us as he was in Nazareth. The church, his people, are the visible revelation of that which was not previously known about Christ. People who will know nothing about Jesus, and this is increasingly so. You have to remember the the capital, the currency that we have enjoyed of Christian or theistic thought in general is such that people for the longest time just sort of knew what Jesus, who Jesus was, a person of history. That's becoming less and less so. We, we have to remember, there, we're in good place here with, well, we only have one real young person among us, this is my daughter Aurora, but we got little, little ones. They're not going to grow up in a culture that talks a lot about theism and about Jesus Christ in any particular way. And so when his name comes up, People are sort of clueless as to what that even means anymore. Who is Jesus? And in this little creed here, what we find out about Jesus, what truth we have about him, the truth that transforms us, the truth that is to resonate and to get into us, is his incarnation, his vindication, his observation, his proclamation, and his glorification. His incarnation, his becoming a man and living that perfect human life. The very thing God had him, that's why he's called the second Adam. Because that's what Adam, man, is what that term means in Hebrew, man, is supposed to be like. That's what human is supposed to be like. This is what human is supposed to be like. So he became that and then of course he took upon himself all of the toxic effects of sin and the deadly rebellion against God and he carried that with him all the way through uh, to, to Calvary where he was crucified for it and where the wrath of God was demonstrated and where the love of God was demonstrated and then he was risen again. And Jesus, he says, was vindicated by the Spirit. So throughout his lifetime, the Holy Spirit performed miracles and wonders through him. His message was vindicated, which is to say it was affirmed. It was said 
this is true. Here is some evidence. Here is some testimony to show that what Jesus is saying is true was various signs and wonders. There is no such vindication in the truth claims of other worldviews, is there? You know, again, going back to some of the things that are going on and what's referenced as woke culture, where is this sense of, you know, without getting too much into all of what is going on, this, this, you know what the worldviews out there, you know what's being said all the time. I don't have to explain that to you. And, and to a sense, they start to look like they have organization, they have a message, they're getting it everywhere they want it to go. They've made amazing progress. And it made me think back in Genesis when Moses showed up and they threw down the, serp- the, stake, the, the staff and it turned into a serpent and then they turned the rivers to blood and they did frogs and the magicians were able to do the same things. Pharaoh's magicians were able to turn a, a, make it look like a staff turned into a snake. They were able to bring blood out of water. They were able to make some frogs come up. And then all of a sudden, I think it was the gnats that came. And the magicians with their arts were no longer able to do that. See? The other worldviews that are out there that are driving the economy, they're driving academia, they're driving entertainment, they're driving news and information, so they can do a lot of things that we do, but they lack the power. They do not have the vindication from God in any stretch of the imagination. The survival of the church over 2,000 years is testimony enough. We are vindicated. And then, of course, it was the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That was the cosmic amen to everything Jesus said. That amen is still echoing and reverberating throughout the entire universe. That was God's amen to everything that Jesus said. And he was, he was seen by angels. We see throughout Jesus' ministry, the angels were there when he was born. Jesus said, there's rejoicing in heaven by the angels when a sinner repents. If you're here this morning outside of Christ and you hear something in this message about yourself and the Holy Spirit who has to do it, my preaching can't, the person sitting next to you can't, but if the Holy Spirit is able to communicate to your intellect and to your soul that you are set against God and you're in big, big danger. You're a wrecked human. You're a wrecked human. If you at that point see that and come around and you ask God for grace and mercy, the angels in heaven rejoice. Who knows what that's like? And also that the church is a testimony to the angels and the rulers and the spiritual authorities. We confound, the church confounds the spiritual forces of darkness. Confounds them. Wasn't supposed to happen that way. We crucified that guy. What happened? And Peter said, when he's talking about gospely things, things angels long to look into. And then he was proclaimed and believed on in the world. He was proclaimed among the, the nations, believed in the world. The original call for the Israelites was to be a light to the Gentiles. Nations here is another word for Gentiles. The non-Jewish people came to believe in him. He has been believed on by people everywhere that the gospel has gone. Someone has believed. And then, of course, he was glorified. He was glorified. His glorification taken up into glory where he is seated at the right hand of God in the place of ultimate authority and power. All things are put under his feet. All authority has been given unto me, he said. 
And it is this confession, the truth that is bound up in this confession, the object of that confession, Jesus Christ, that is the last point, which is the power of the church. Jesus Christ is the power of the church. He is the power to live a godly life. His his, uh, intercession for us that's ongoing, His taking our place in wrath, His demonstrating the love of the Father, His living a perfect life, all of that is communicated to the church, the household of God, so that we as a family have the power to be this Christ message to the world. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, being conformed unto His image, if by some way I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. It is the gospel. It is why we come here to church. Think of that not as a noun, but as a verb. We are churching today. We're churching. We're fellowshipping. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in a moment. Where Christ is revealed to us, He says in some particular way, in the Lord's Supper, we're able to proclaim His death until He comes again. So we know He's coming again. So when we're eating again, we're remembering that He's coming back and we're making a proclamation about His death. We're saying something about this. We're saying something. We're not verbal. We're very quiet when it's happening. But we are shouting, Jesus Christ died and was raised again. He's coming again in glory. And this contemplation of this is what is transformative of us. This is how we come to be recognized and known truly as the household of God. Uh, Robert McShane, who was in nineteenth, early 19th century preacher, was died very young. He says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. And I'll close with this. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And I would add, for every look you take at another Christian, take 20 looks at Christ, because you're looking in the wrong place. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in His beams. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and the excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. And this little creed here gives us the ability to do that. This is what creeds are for. Little short, concise summaries of our faith. Memorize the Nicene or the Apostles' Creed. Memorize it. Sing it. It's in song form, right? (laughs) Or I memorize that and sing it. It, Sing it. The truths of the gospel are encapsulated in these little hymns and creeds so that we don't have to go, even if you're not great at scripture memory or you you just haven't redone, it's there. It's there. You can meditate upon it and contemplate it so that we can truly be the household of God. And with that, the household now is going to gather around the table of the Lord so that we can partake of the dinner that he summoned us to when he was going to have the final Passover with his apostles, the one that he said, I have longed, I have longed. He'd already had, his public ministry began at 30, so he had eaten Passover with them a couple times. I have longed, he said, to eat this Passover meal with you because he was going to bring about the fulfillment of the Passover at that moment in time. Everything that the Passover and the Exodus was pointing to was being wrapped up in Jesus. There at that table, he was revealing the mystery of the gospel. So we're going to partake of that uh, now. Um, I've asked a couple people, uh, I've asked Todd and Shannon will follow Todd, to give praise to Jesus Christ on behalf of the church to help further prepare our hearts in thinking about what it means to be the household of God, to be at the table of God, to be a partaker of the one loaf, to drink from the one cup. It's 
in a way, unfortunate that the Lord's Supper just sort of comes and goes so quickly and it's just a little taste of something, a little sip of something. How do you represent that cosmic echo of amen through a little taste and a little sip? But the Spirit is willing and able to help us, and so let's pray that He would, and I'll pray, and then Todd, if you would, and then Shannon. As we come to Your table, Lord, where we remember the love and the pity and the mercy that You poured out on humanity through Your holy servant, Jesus, who broke bread, who spoke of His body and of His blood, and gave us something forever to remember that by. Be pleased, O Lord, to let the true meaning of this, despite its brevity, give us all that we need for the long run. Help us in our marathon of faith for as many days as you give us, as we hold fast to the end by your power and your spirit. Contemplate often, as we come to the Lord's table, exactly what happened. 2,000 years ago, what was spoken about and planned about before the foundation of the world and how you were pleased to make us your flock and to share with us of all your goodness and to love us even as you love Jesus. It is a miracle. Help us, Lord, to get it deeper and deeper into our spiritual DNA so that it does all that you intended it to do. Amen.